Hey, you're listening to the Viable Markets Podcast. I'm your host, Chris White. Welcome to Masters of Market Structure. Welcome to Masters of Market Structure. Um, This is Chris White, and I'm really pleased today to be sitting here with a friend of mine. I don't even know how long we've been friends. I'm sitting with Steve Grob uh, from Fidesa. Um, I know that the origin story to our friendship was me reading a bunch of Steve's papers and then stalking him, uh, you know, Stephen King misery style, because I really loved um, the topics that he selected and how he wrote about market structure and strategy. And so that must have been about, I would say, maybe six or seven years ago. And then we became friends after that. And so I was thrilled when he made his way to New York and was able to accept my invitation to the podcast. But Introducing Steve Grob, normally the way I open up our, uh, Masters of Market Structure, Steve, is I ask somebody to give a little bit of their origin story. So I'd love your, your background to why you're, how you're able to sit in this seat right now with me putting a microphone in front of your face. Sure. Well, well firstly, Chris, thank you. Thank you for having me on board. So my, my, my background is, in fact, I'm a, a futures guy by background. I ran my own business um, for 10 years, was part of the evolution of electronic trading in, in futures markets. I then joined Fidesa um, actually quite a long time ago now, 15 years ago, and helped them promote and develop a capability in derivatives markets. The, 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 the turning point for me was actually MIFID 1 in Europe because I started to believe that that was going to completely change how equities were traded in Europe. Could you just stop for a quick second, yeah. and I, I'm going to do this throughout yeah. our time together, That's but, okay. um, you know, for, very familiar with MIFID 2 in, in terms yeah. of what the overarching, uh, let's say, goal is. Yeah. What was MIFID 1's goal? So, so, so MIFID 1 originally was about breaking down the national monopolies of stock exchanges. So if you wanted to trade Vodafone, you'd have to trade it in London. If you wanted to trade Heineken, you'd have to trade it in Amsterdam. And what Europe wanted to do as part of a, a much bigger political project was make it easy to trade any European name in any market. And a lot of people were pretty cynical way back then that actually they would be successful. And I was one that believed that they would and set about preparing for ESA for those changes. The thing, the irony of the whole thing is that when MIFID went live in 2007, we were just about to drive the economy off a cliff. And so we had the financial crisis, and suddenly MIFID was pivoted to become much more of a punishment agenda on the banks and the finance industry. Um, And that's where a lot of the ideas around um, transparency and best execution was really started to double down. And and, and that really was what, what became the genesis of MIFID II was to try and prevent the kind of crisis that we had back in 2007-8 from happening. But the, the original idea of MIFID was nothing to do with that. It was all about market structure. And it totally fascinated me. And of course, a lot of people, and it's a human tendency, they want to believe things are going to carry on as, as they did yesterday. And I was originally one of the lone guys that said, no, things are going to fundamentally change. We're going to have to completely re-architect our our products. And slowly but surely that started um, to take shape and form. And then as the ideas of MIFID and BestX 
got picked up in Australia and Canada, uh, Japan to some extent. It became a really interesting journey of trying to understand in financial markets, why does one market structure work one way, why does regulation affect it a different way, how do participants respond? And once, once you kind of get into that, it becomes um, just a, a fascinating story trying to understand it and piece it together. So my impression of your role at Fidesa is that they've, they've sort of hired you, and I don't know whether this role has changed over time, but they've hired you to help steer the aircraft carrier around these uh, environmentally changing Absolutely. issues. And so what... What what makes you the right fit for that, and what's your sort of what's your methodology around deciding to go left or right? Because clearly you got it right in terms of MIFID one's yeah, going yeah, yeah, going yeah, to yeah. profoundly change the way that yeah. we do business, uh, probably accelerated also by two thousand eight itself. But uh, like, how do you uh, inject your view of where the market's going and where we need to be organizationally? So I think, I think the first thing that's really important to help me do that in my role is Fidesz is organised into a buy-side business, an equities business, an electronic execution business, derivatives business. And I work with the service line heads, but I'm not biased in favour of any one of them over any other. But the most important thing, Chris, is before you can have any kind of a sensible viewpoint, you've got to go out and listen. And... I'm fortunate with Fidesa that we're a global company. We connect to 200 markets around the world. We have 900 institutional customers across the buy side and across the sell side. And so I spent an awful lot of my time <coughs> reaching out to these people and taking ideas, sharing them, pre-validating them. And eventually you start to form some sort of synthesis of how you think things are going to go. Um, and then the tricky bit is convincing different service lines who are obviously rushing around trying to solve today's problems that, hey, you've got to think about this for tomorrow or the next day. Um, and, and sometimes that's where the tension creeps in. And, and um, a lot of it has to be around collecting um, evidence. And we talked about this earlier. And looking at the history of markets, because mm -hmm. there's so much to be learned from how things have developed before. So now, now I, I'm, I'm understanding the, what the method to your madness, why you are so consistently publishing what I would consider to be research level content that you pretty much give away. But um, I think that if I'm reading your process correctly, it's, it's not just uh, you coming back and internally saying, hey, I heard these things, let's do this. I think you end up building general consensus publicly with the stuff that you write. I know that when I started reading a lot of your work, my head was nodding in agreement with your just general approach, even though it was talking maybe about a different asset class than the one that I was working on. Uh, you had really sound thinking around what is the, the overarching guidance uh, for, mar for market makers was particularly what caught my eye because I was on the market making side at the time. So is that really what's driven you on the writing side? Do you just like to write or uh, um, and how uh, often are you producing so, content? So, so there's, there's a couple of questions in there. Actually, actually yes, I do like to write um, 
uh, and I write other other sort of science fiction stuff privately, but that's just a hobby. So, so yes, I love writing stuff down. I think it helps crystallize your own thinking. If you can't explain something in one sheet of paper or two sheets of paper at the most, you don't understand it well enough. And the, always trying to express, you know, our markets, which can get pretty complicated, Chris, as you know, mm -hmm. as simply as possible is always the goal. And I think it is by putting, and thank you for saying that, 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 that you like the content, by putting that content out there, what we're doing as a firm is demonstrating our relevance to our stakeholders that we're prepared to put the effort in to actually understand what on earth is happening in their industry and that we're prepared for it um, and that we're committed to them and serving them in the longer term. And I think if you talk to any of our customers, they, you know, we talk internally a lot about what is the customer journey that we're taking them on. And, the, you know, the, the, the truth is they might not, not, might not like every stop on mm -hmm. the way necessarily, but they know that they're on a journey and that the destination is going to take them into a good outcome. So mm -hmm. you, I don't think you can do that unless you can demonstrate that you're reasonably articulate with the subject matter. And so when you're, when you're sort of gathering intelligence through, through working with customers, is it informal? Are you coming to their desk with a survey? How are you it's, able it's, to... It's, it's, it's actually both. Um, I think that, um, you know, in some cases we will either uh, commission our own research or conduct our own research ourselves. We may use third-party firms for some of the bigger stuff that we do. Um, we're currently working on a project looking at how the ele electronic execution space in equities is kind of growing up and how firms need a more sophisticated kind of um, algo management container to really run that, those electronic execution businesses as an exception handling service that has the fewest numbers of people but the very highest levels of service. And so from that perspective, are you writing that from a buy side's point of view in terms of how they're managing algos that are being provided to them by other dealers? Or are you talking about... I, I, actually, actually, so that, that, that's a very good question. So in a lot of cases, when we start on some of these journeys, we start with the buy side, because as you know, that's the, 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 the tail that generally wags the dog. Um, in, in that particular instance, however, we're actually looking at the sell side, whom are all hearing from their electronic execution customers that they need to be able to provide a much tighter level of service to be able to know before the buy side client does that an algo might be flying off side and they expect to get the phone call or the instant message before that happens not have to make a phone call and the guy says oh look I'll tell you what I'll get back to you so, so in, in that particular instance, that's, that's for a bit more of a sell-side-focused project. But, but I, I do want to go back over what you're saying in terms of starting with the sell-side, the buy-side, because it, that, that's the sort of the tail that wags the dog. Uh, because what I, what I glean from your technique, and have used it myself personally, is you get the attention of the sell-side by explaining to them how they get the attention of the customer. What's the customer seeing on their side of the screen? And how do you become relevant to that customer? Because even though we're moving into, in certain markets, in the markets where you have provided a lot of coverage into a more technical relationship, 
that technical relationship still does have differentiating points. What are those differentiating points from the perspective of the buy side? Because if I'm designing my strategy on the sell side, it first has to start with, well, here are my top 20 customers. How do they want to interact with me? And if I'm able to check the boxes on what will get their attention and will get their order flow directed my way, then my overall marketing, uh, marketing and distribution plan is in good shape. Is, is that been sort of the way that you've approached it? And, and yes, it, yes, it has very much. And I think um, you know, when you look at markets now, everyone has been so uh, busy, understatement, with getting ready for all this regulatory stuff, in particular the Mifid II stuff. Now that that's over, people are starting to want to understand, well, what is the new market structure that's evolving? And, and, and also start to do some cool, fun stuff again. And, and I, I know we were talking about this earlier, but the increasing transparency that we're seeing in markets is, is really only just beginning. And so if, if your business model is predicated on opacity, I think that that's going to be quite a challenging position moving forward. So a lot of, a lot of sell-side firms are saying, how do I demonstrate relevance in a world where um, research and execution is unbundled, where um, there's far more data available on best execution, and, and it, all those sorts of things start to become very important to developing a, a, a valid position. So thematically, how has that changed over time? You know, Ten years ago, if we're having this conversation, what advice are you giving to the sell side about being relevant in equities and futures markets to their buy side, the most important buy side customers? And what sort of shifted? Well, I, th I think, again, you're seeing a, a complete change to the human dynamic where, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was all about relationship management. And your sales traders, your relationship managers owned accounts. And obviously that still happens, but it's, it's much more now that you're seeing, uh, dare I say it, you know, younger, smarter kids armed with technology that we really know how smarter. to use it. Exactly. <laughs> 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 who, who, who really know how to use this stuff that can provide a level of, of execution consulting that's very different from the you know, traditional relationship-based approach. This is, this is pervasive throughout. I think it's very understandable if you think about it, you know, just throughout society how, how it's changed, right? I was, I was listening to a song the other day which is about a, a, a woman, a girl at the time, when she was singing, she was a pop star. Um, she is so in love with a guy, she said she was gonna write him a four-page letter, and she was hoping the mailman would get it to him. And I'm listening to the song, and it's like, how outdated is this? Like, <laughs> that's not the way you get anybody's attention today. That's not the way you show them you care. I guess it's maybe a meme or uh, some but, sort of... But that, but, but, that, but that is the thing that... Now, now, nowadays, there's so much information about it. It's so easy to go and find information. You just look at our everyday lives. Yes. How much easier it is to make an informed choice about any kind of purchase decision that you want to make. And that process is, is, is now continually penetrating capital markets. And so the idea that you had some little niche that no one was going to come and uh, try and uh, eat your lunch in is gone. And, and everyone can see so much more of what's going on. And so 
being able to differentiate, because in some ways all that extra information creates a lot of noise. And so you have to be able to find ways to stand out from the crowd. And this is where I really, where your writing really resonated with me, because you didn't just make that statement. What really left an impression with me was you went a step further and you said, it's not a one size fits all model for how you differentiate yourself as a market maker. It really depends on your size. Mm. So I don't know if you can recall what you're, you're, you were espousing as a philosophy here, and I'm happy to paraphrase what I remember, but um, I think adding the size dynamic is really critical. Um, you know, the, the, the line that I use with certain uh, market makers is, uh, you may not find success trying to be Walmart here. Absolutely. And so what, well, so, what, so what, what is, you know, I think if I'm listening to this and I'm a market maker, I'm thinking of getting into market making or I'm evaluating my strategy, so what are, what's the difference in differentiation strategy depending on size? So I, think, I, I think what we're moving towards is the sort of multitude of niches. So that, and, and you don't have to pick just one, you can pick a number of them. But you may be focusing, depending upon which particular um, asset class you're talking about, a particular sector, a particular side, um, size rather, a uh, the liquid end, the illiquid end. Um, but again, you're, you're seeing again two different ideas emerge. One is, which is what a lot of the banks are doing, is they this concept of a central risk book where they're saying, let's take all the positions across all the trading aspects of the bank and net them off so that if I'm long Vodafone but short of FTSE future, there's some kind of natural hedge in that. And um, that then is used as a basis of making risk prices out to the street. And then, then you've got the, the other generation of citadels, towers, Jane Streets, that are using tech and math to come up with what is the true price of something and add a tiny bit of margin onto that and then quote that to the street. And the two, the, the, for me, those are two fundamental approaches that are different. And I agree with you that um, not every, you know, there's only a few Walmarts, mm -hmm. right? And there's room for one or two, but not everyone can be that. So what happens when a, a smaller dealer tries to become a Walmart, what, what are some of the signs that this is not the right strategy for us? What, what do you see happening when uh, they have a suboptimal approach? I think, I think um, and, and you can see this again in, uh, in the European marketplace, which has probably undergone more change with Mifid 2 in terms of transparency, best decks, unbundling, all that stuff. And it comes down to being able to answer a very simple question. What, what is my value proposition? Who is it for? And why is it better than their current approach? And the firms that can articulate that and say, I focus on illiquid FTSE 250 stocks. And I may, I may focus on other areas too, but it's the firms that do a little bit of everything that, that for me tends to be the worrying sign because the cost of being in this industry, the returns of being in this industry are inverted now so that you make less money and it costs you more to service any particular sector. Well, this, this is where we get into this, into this um, discussion of the value proposition. Mm 
I think from the sell side, from the buy side's perspective, reliable liquidity is at the top of the list. Um, can I rely on you when I need to do the trade? And the the given that the buy side has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger over time, meeting that requirement now require now means that you're you're going to be there for size yes. on demand size. Yeah. Now. If you're going to be there for on-demand size, the breadth of what you can cover in that fashion has got to change because you will be a mile wide and an inch deep if you do try to support more products than you should. And to your point, you know, in terms of a multitude of niches, find the niche that, 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 that suits your style, suits your balance sheet, and really push forward on that. Um, but that's... I don't know whether all dealers come to that uh, by having someone say it to them or whether it's just a result of like, we are not making money anymore. I think, I think the thing that we see, particularly amongst the larger, you know, the, the, the top tier institutions is the pressures they have on return on capital are so much greater now. And as, as, as you know, the ability to warehouse inventory has fallen away massively. So each, each deal has to make sense in its own right in the moment. And that's a very, very hard thing to do across a hugely broad front. So I want to ask you about that because I think that in modernized markets where there is a bit of, there's a lot more anonymity around who you're trading with, something is starting to get lost around the ability for an institutional market maker to optimize their balance sheet. And what, what, what the variable that comes into play when you're talking about uh, whether we should do the trade, I, th I think it's, yes, is it risk, obviously, um, but a big portion of that variable, um, uh, it's risk, it's price, like mm -hmm. would we do the trade here? And then it's who's asking, because depending on what the historical relationship is and what the predicted future relationship is, doing a big trade at bid market may make a ton of sense for you with that customer, or it may not. Uh, so how are how are dealers in these modernized markets able to make informed decisions when there is a lot of anonymity regarding who you're dealing with in, in certain venues? Well, I think, I think that comes down, again, for the larger firms, this central risk book idea, which is for any given instrument, we'll make a, if you will, a sort of house price. Okay. And then that is tweaked up or down according to exactly to your point. Who is this? What trading relationship do we have with them? What trading relationship do we want with them in the future? Are we prepared to invest a bit and take on a bit more risk because we want to do more business with this particular institution. But I, but, but I want to actually pause you here for a second because you mentioned MIFID too, mm -hmm. and I didn't have a chance to, how many paragraphs is it you 1. said? 1.7 million. Yes. I only I've had counted a, them all, but I haven't <laughs> read them. <laughs> <laughs> I've only had a chance to read a small fraction of that. But the portion of MIFID two that really shocked me was the, the area of the mandate that, uh, says that a dealer must show the available price that they made to a customer, they must put it out there to all customers within that tier so that they're able to actually interact with that price if they want to as well. 
And the reason why that really was concerning to me is because where you tier a customer is very personal. You know, it's like, it, like a child asking you, uh, you have multiple children, who do you love best? You're never gonna answer that question. So to formally put it out there, or to systemically have a, 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 a mechanism in place in which you're flashing this price to all of your tier one customers, you know, I'm gonna, it's, it's actually worse than that, Chris, because the systematic internalizer regime obliges you to, if just before I um, confirm a price with you, I have to make that price available. There's nothing that says exactly where I have to make that available or how long before I execute a trade with you. See, it's so a the rule. whole thing is is, 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 is a bit of window dressing. Well, it's a rule without the architecture to, to follow through yeah. with the rule, which, which I, I think was, I can't believe it was missed in the 1.7 million paragraphs. But I was recently at a meeting um, in the SEC, and the panel before my panel was, is, is MIFID II working? And I can tell you from the tone of the panel, no, was, no, was basically the... And the, 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 the reason for that, is, and I'll give you a couple of examples, is the politicization, which is what I come back to about how the scope of MIF had changed. So when it became this kind of punishment agenda, the politicians wanted to be able to have juicy sound bites for the TV cameras to say, yes, we've got this industry under control, this sort of thing will never happen again, we'll never have to bail the banks out, yada, yada, yada. And so the whole thing had to get so dumbed down. So when the regulators said, well, we want fixed income markets to work the same way as equity markets because we think lit um, transparent execution is, 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 is the most preferable way to trade. When the industry went back and said, you do know there's a gazillion time more fixed income instruments that are massively less liquid than equities, so a lit market won't work. They said, we don't care, you go figure it out. So when you've got that kind of political rhetoric in the background, it's really not surprising that um, the objectives of MIFID II haven't been met. And, and when, you, when you come down to, you know, regulators around the world always talk about outcomes for the retail investor. Now, I could guarantee you I could walk down the streets of London, stop anyone and say, are you getting a better deal when you buy 100 shares of Vodafone in your ice or whatever? And he wouldn't know what I was talking about or care. See, I'll share with you. And, sorry, just, and given that the industry spent, yeah, rough estimate of $4 billion. Yeah, that was the Getting ready for it. Yeah. Um, you have to say, was that $4 billion well spent? Or would it have been better if you want to punish the finance industry, just levy a tax on it, we pay our four billion and you give everyone you know, a tax credit or something. I mean, you know, as a way of making markets fairer, better, um, I don't think that any of that has been achieved. They're certainly more complicated and they're certainly more costly to operate. Which, which ends up becoming an unintended uh, barrier to competition. We, we, we saw this with the inelegant implementation of a lot of the Dodd-Frank rules when it came to regulating the derivatives markets here. Now, what do we have? 
We have an industry that enthusiastically produced, let's say, anywhere between 20 to, to, to 40 new execution venues for trading under these new rules. And the end result is only two real venues are left standing. And they, those were the two venues that had the deepest pockets to be able to withstand the inordinate amount of prescriptive regulation that had to do with how you could trade something electronically. Uh, my, my own personal ambition is pretty large, but I'm hoping to depoliticize the way that we regulate markets by starting to add in uh, what I would call accepted scientific theory on how markets actually behave, yep. which I'd say it's, it's, a, it's a wild ambition because even as I'm saying that, I'm thinking to myself of climate change deniers <laughs> sitting in the government looking at pictures and saying, you doctored this or whatever. Um, so maybe we'll never get there because these are more established sciences around geology and climatology that um, are still being called hoodoo. But I do believe that there is an underlying science. There's a, there's a, there are dynamics to market structure, so you would. Uh, you know, and I believe in those dynamics so strongly that I would relate them to the, to the same way that we understand that an ostrich will never fly is the way that we can understand that, that trying to throw an order book at uh, the fixed income markets and say, figure it out, is just as preposterous. But we have seen initiatives like Cassiopeia, I don't know if you remember that one, mm -hmm. which was the pan-European uh, attempt to create an exchange around fixed income securities. And that kind of goes back to one of the things you mentioned about your origin story. You started in the futures market. I think the futures market during your career has really gone through this, hey, we wanted to work a certain way, and then it started working a certain way, and, and I'd say now it's probably arrived Yes. And where people wanted it to be 20 years ago, we were talking about we need improvements in the futures market. Um, what, what, here's what, the thing about that. Yeah, I, I want to hear I about that. It's fascinating. It's that the changes that happened in futures markets were um, nothing to do with regulation. It was all about, and this is the, this is the thing, to ch really change people's behavior, there has to be an economic benefit 100% agree. hurdle for not doing so. Yes. And what really made markets change was the German Bund was traded on the floor of life forever. The back then DTB, which became Eurex, went around the London market giving away screams to repatriate the Bund. And over a period of six to nine months, that's exactly what they did. That was when life woke up and smelled the coffee and said, if we don't create an electronic trading platform, we might struggle to survive. And so it was all about the sort of cut and thrust of competition that drove that market change. And that's a much more powerful incentive for people than here's a new rule in a rule book that has to be severally interpreted and you then have to code for that. And I think, I think for me, I'm, I'm a great believer in trying to shape a path rather than be prescriptive. So if you make behaving in a certain way economically advantageous, human nature means people will move towards that model. Well, that, that's, that's what, you know, we, were talk, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but, but the, the, 
to creating an environment where people do what they ought to do, but you're not forcing them. Correct. That's where you get the, the organic development of markets, but we've really lost our way, uh, Steve, you know, just globally. I think we somehow believe that we can engineer the market through regulation, despite the, there, there being no evidence that that's ever really happened. And also, despite the fact that we've seen some disasters come out of uh, the intended regulation creating unintended consequences that then require more regulation. Right. So I, I, just, I just don't know what the answer is to a more sound approach. For example, like, would we repeal any of the rules that we think have done the market wrong? How do we even start that discussion? It seems like once a rule has been put into place, it's there. So have you, have you in the, a little bit more in the, in, I'd love to know a little bit more about the histories of the futures market because did regulators step in and say like, let, let us help you? At, at no, I think, I, I, I think one of the advantages um, of futures markets is they're global, they're all centrally cleared, they're highly transparent and they're very efficient. Um, and so it was very clear to see what was going on. Um, and I think that the, um, I'm pr probably the only real regulatory touch in terms of futures markets as opposed to OTC derivatives has been the inclusion of futures within the realm of best execution. So now, a lot of the algos that we've grown up with in equities markets around execution outcomes are being readapted for futures markets. Um, but I think, I think what happened is futures markets kind of changed a model that was acceptable pre the financial crisis. So they didn't seem to get caught up so much in the um, political hand-wringing, oh gosh, we've got to fix it. And you're absolutely right, Chris, that the result of more, <clears throat> of more regulation is more regulation. And so, you know, expect um, uh, MIFID 2.5 that's going to have to deal with a Brexit in the UK. So... <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I, I have to say, Steve, I'm, I'm less optimistic about innovation in financial markets occurring in continental Europe than I am in the United States now. Yes. And that was not my opinion pre-MIFID II, because I do think that the, the competitive dynamics in Europe supported more, supported more innovation, because everyone's looking for an edge and you didn't have as much concentration of power as you see in the United States when it comes to financial markets. But now at this point in time, like a new idea first has to fit all of the doctrines espoused by the MIFID rules, you know, present and future, before it can even be considered. And I just, I think that's, a, that's just a massive hurdle. So I'm not, I'm really concerned about what happens to European market structure yeah, um, going I, forward. I, mean, I, I do agree with you, but um, at the same time, I'm a great believer in the creativity of human nature and the success of innovation and capitalism and that you see um, new initiatives start and be successful 
Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm probably a little bit more optimistic than you. No, I'm glad. Maybe that's just hey, my, you've my got a closer seat. <laughs> no, you've got a closer seat. And I, but I also think it then comes down to people asking you more questions. And certainly, you know, this, the, the, the steering of the ship at Fidesa is going to become even more important because you, you do have to have that eye, not where are we right now, it is 18 months from now, right. what do we have to be ready with? So what are, just holistically, I don't want you to give any trade secrets, but what do you think a solution provider like Fidesa has to be ready with? Um, so so I, think, to, to I, think, I think you could think of a couple of things that are, are very evident. One is, you know, when you look at digitization in our everyday lives and compare it to what's happening in capital markets, there's a huge opportunity there. You know, our industry is brilliant at producing data. It's a bit less good at actually creating any kind of actionable insight from it. Um, the second thing is automation of workflow, simply because that's the only way you can operate at a, at a cost point that makes sense, taking people out of the process, making people more productive. And the third thing that um, is interesting for me is, is, is actually what a post-trade, because we talk about saving a BIP or two on execution costs, and you look at the wastage in post-trade to actually get deals cleared and settled. Yes. And that used to be okay, because people make enough money to, to tolerate that inefficiency. And, 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 and the truth is no more. So you could almost see how the post-trade starts to become the next big area where um, people are looking to automate, use standards. We're, we're working on a couple of projects now where we're repurposing fix from an order routing protocol, standard, call it what you will, into a mechanism for handling some of the post-trade communication because it's the same buy side talking to the same sell side yep. about the same order. So why not carry on the, the conversation with that telephone system then, then start a whole new way of communicating? So that those, are, those are sort of the, the portions of the trade that obviously don't get looked at because we are so focused on TCA. So how, how do you approach showing someone the value of that sort of optimization? Because TCA is obviously an established practice, so is it? What what, what is it called? First of all, it, ha it has to have a. It's got to have a name, Steve, because so, everything must well, be productized. Well, I think, I think, I think the, the what we're starting to see is when you look in today's world where uh, there is a huge premium on certainty. So if I think I've traded with you, yes. the quicker I know that I actually have. Yes. and that the allocations of my funds have been sent to you and you know those details and those various custodians uh, you know, can move the right numbers around on the right um, ledgers, then um, that certainty means you have lower risk, you have a better use of capital, as well as being um, operating at a, on, a, on, a, on a lower cost footprint. And, and, and funnily enough, it's one of the things that blockchain has done. Well, just not, about to, just not, about not, to say. Not because, not because of the technology, but it's meant that so much of the industry has looked at post-trade now, and because it's now fashionable to have a DLT project in play. 
and they look at their post-trade operations and they get a shock because they go, oh my God, I didn't realize it was as inefficient as that. And the truth is it costs you 10 times more to fix a break once it's gone into the downstream system yes. than to get it right before it goes in. Yes. Yeah. And all, you know, the, the increasing use of standards, repurposing information and data that's captured in front office and feeding it more effectively through to middle and back office so that you don't have a concept of front, middle and back office. You just have office and it's a business service that enables people to get their business done with each other rather than this sort of having to have these silos where suddenly there's a big upheaval. How do we get the data from here into here? It shouldn't be that way. So, so as you were speaking, I was thinking if there's a, somebody who's, who's creating blockchain solutions right now and they're listening to this, their arm is in the air saying, Steve, I've been Steve, at conferences Steve, where right. I've said that and that's exactly what's happened. <laughs> right. So my personal issue with blockchain is the universal application of it, the way that it's spoken about. Obviously, I think that there, there, there are things that we can leverage from the yeah. concept of the technology. But, but, the, but the application of it itself requires, I think, some deeper thought on yep. what's appropriate. Maybe at some point in time, we will see front-to-back execution to settlement on a blockchain. But for now, where could you see blockchain being applied to settlement to get the efficiencies that you're talking about? Is it... Well, I think, I, th I, think, I think that's the challenge, Chris, is that um, where, where blockchain would be brilliant is if everyone was on the same version at the same time. The minute you have different flavors of, of, of distributed ledgers and different groups on different projects, you need an intermediary but to bridge between the two. Mm -hmm. And that's starting to... Uh, perpetuate the problem you're trying to solve for. Um, it's almost like when APIs first came into the market, it started a problem that hadn't been anticipated, which is the translation of different API languages. It, it, yeah, exactly. Right. So then, but but is there a fixed protocol solution for blockchain then? No, no but the, there is a fixed protocol for post or fixed protocol, allocation. Fixed, fixed protocol-like solution yeah. in that. And let's all let's all at least and operate it, from certain and standards. It, it, and again, I think the most powerful initiatives are ones that aren't trying to own the standard, but create a standard. So um, I like that. To give you an example, in I'm jumping around a bit, but in, in um, uh, more front office technology, one of the firms we've partnered with recently is OpenFit. And they enable you to rapidly create HTML front ends that leverage other bits of data. But what they've done is create a thing called FDC3, which is a open source foundation, which is saying when the command says get chart, get the chart, nothing else. And let's just use that syntax in our code all the way through. Now, of course, yes, they've got a commercial self-interest in that, but they're creating a standard that's shared, whereas it seems to me that the current blockchain battle is to own the standard. And until that part of the game has been played out and someone emerges victorious, who and it'll probably be down to blind luck, because that's how these things work, 
that they just happen to coalesce around a community and there's some success and there's a, a snowball effect, then, then, then it becomes really interesting, but not, not until. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that Fidesa and OpenFin have, have consummated a relationship. I hope you guys have. I'm going to take credit for somewhere along the line <laughs> introduce, yeah, introducing you guys because... I think I'll give you a drink on that. No, be, be, because, because, you know, I know Mozzie and the yeah. team very well, and after they pitched me the vision five times, I finally got it, because I think initially it was a bit just really hard for the mind to understand if mm -hmm. you, you know, were not living in that world. But then I instantly thought, you know, there are thousands of, of people who could benefit from this, uh, I do remember Fidesa being on my list, and the reason why is because I think Fidesa and other rubber management systems are, are tasked with the, you know, the unenviable yeah. position of being everything in one, posi in one spot for your end user. Yep. And Globally. I, right, look, <laughs> so how do you do that? Well, you've got to give the end user maximum flexibility in terms of what applications they call on within your framework. And, and I, th I think that OpenFin's trying to push that reality into yeah. the marketplace. And as an, as an order management system provider, then that changes the dynamic for you. You become you know, an, organiza an, an organizational facility of niche functionality, the same way you are an organizational facility of niche execution options. Well, exactly, and, 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 and the irony of the whole thing is when we came to the realization that we should be partnering with firms like OpenFit, also Solace at a, at, a, at a data messaging level, what we found when we took that story to our clients was it said that, well, actually, that will make us more dependent on Fidesa not less dependent because we'll, you will be at the heart of everything and now we're free to integrate, add value, add our IP around yes. the Fidesa system. And, that, and, and suddenly the pain is dropped at, at Fidesa that we're, we're actually not losing something by working with these sorts of firms. We're gaining a huge amount. And, and that, I, I think that's, that's, a, that's a really important philosophical shift in strategy. Yes. Because yes, it is. I do think that um, we, we, see, we certainly see this now, I'd say we're at a point right now in, in the corporate bond market where the execution solutions are still trying to concentrate on owning execution. And they haven't realized that the, the thing you want to own is the desktop. Yep. Because then you don't have to fight anymore about the actual trade if everyone needs your tools in order to enter and exit the market. And so order management systems we know in more modernized markets become the most important cust client, really, to the, to the, to the market makers. Uh, same opportunity is available right now in fixed income, I think, to uh, the execution venues as to open up their systems so that they allow multiple execution venues to interact through their interface as opposed to saying, hey, you can only trade on my system as opposed to opening up the market. I think, I think, I think I'd, I'd maybe express that a little differently, that it's about owning the desktop, the data, and the dynamics between the two. And I think those are the three areas that um, are gonna become increasingly important. I like that, because the, the, the dynamic between the desktop and the data yeah. is, to, to your point, there's a lot of data out there, 
but actually being able to derive insights from it. Now, this is where Fidesa must step in and give the toolkit yes. and then allow your end users, um, and I'm sure some of the younger, more proficient ones, it's easier, <laughs> <laughs> but allow them to start putting together these fantastic tools. Now, the flexibility of that desktop in order to make certain thing, certain applications call on other applications, you know, it's almost in, in some ways like you just, when I was a kid, they would just throw a bunch of Legos at you and you'd make a spaceship. Unfortunately today, the spaceship is prefabricated and you're just following the instructions. But I think what we're going to is something where uh, if people can stretch the boundaries of what they can create in that uh, sort of the, the synergy between the desktop and the data, uh, we're gonna start to see some fantastic tools coming to the market and people being able to generate better returns because they have those tools. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's I think, always the dream, but it, it seems to always um, gestate and start with the tinkerers that are out there, of which yeah. you know, is, is the smallest population normally. Um, so Steve, I, 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 I think we're coming to the end, but I wanted to just kind of talk to you about, as we, as we close out, mm -hmm. so, so what do you see as being the, the verdict on MIFID two now that we are approaching the the one year anniversary because there 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 was uh, I think reserved but consistent n negative reaction to it at least at the SEC recently. Uh, how do you think it's going to be looked at a year from now, three so, years from year, now, so five I think, years from now? Um, I think what will happen is, is is you can see a couple a couple of things definitely emerge. One is no one's quite worked out how the systematic internalizer construct is going to work moving forward, other than everyone thinks it's important. The second is there's a view that now the obligation for best execution is as much on the shoulders as the buy side, as the sell side. We've really got to start taking that stuff importantly. And the third is that the unbundling of research provision from execution commissions is going to expose those cell sites that aren't pretty good at one or the other or both in, in, in some niche or another. But as um, the uh, spectre of Brexit looms over Europe, I'm, I think that's going to be the thing that is going to be what everyone else, every, you know, right now that's what's occupying everyone's minds. And what is the, what's the general tone now? If they held a, a, a well, they, well, they, I mean, vote I, on the referendum. So, so as, as, a, as, a, as a, perhaps as a final point, Chris, it's starting to become a self-fulfilling prophecy because market participants have taken the decision, I cannot wait for some clarity whether we have hard Brexit, soft Brexit, I'm blah, blah, out. blah, Brexit. I have to make some decisions, and the only way, the only decision I can make is based on the worst case. So, Cibo Europe has set up um, an operation in Amsterdam, as have Turquoise. I think TradeWeb's moved there. Um, Dublin looks like being the centre for post-trade operations, um, and people are going. And what what mean what that means is they are going to have to be ready by April 2019. So because they have to be ready by then, they're going to switch all these things on and we're going to light up a new... So when you, you're saying this to me, and my instant reaction to this, and, and I just, yeah. I guess because I think this way, is what happens to the tax base in London? Well, 
it, it, so what it's going to do is it's going to duplicate costs for everyone. Um, and the I don't know what the exact figures are, but the volume of trade in UK names is a lot higher than in any individual centre in Europe. And you've got to bear in mind that London is much more of a financial centre in FX and other asset classes. So, um, I mean, it's a good question. I, I, I don't know the exact answer, but I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see how it works out. But it, it, that's going to be the thing that's occupying everyone's mind. So what is success for people that are pro-Brexit? <laughs> What's their definition but of success? But the, the, that's the thing. I mean, it's a, bit, it's a bit of a political point, but when the UK did the referendum, um, we knew what staying in Europe looked like. And then Brexit was, well, what's behind door number three? And no one knew. And now we're starting to, to uncover just what a, a huge mess and complexity it's going to be. People are going to say, oh, I've kind of opened door number three and I'm not sure I like it. Can I close it again? And in financial markets, it's too late for that because it's, you know, the die has been cast and we're going to end up with EU27 names being traded in Europe under Brussels law, London names being traded in London and, and Swiss names being traded in Switzerland. Well, what's, what's really fascinating about what you've described is that on a, on a, you know, on a micro basis, innovation is normally challenged by the fact that you have a set of unknowns around that new idea unknowns that can't be measured and can't be quantified. How much revenue do we think we'll be able to generate with this new idea? Uh, what's the, what are the profit margins? These are things that the innovator is really making up and cannot say for certain. Meanwhile, the established business is the one that you know and normally gets the resourcing and the backing. But what you're describing to me is an environment where there were enough people frustrated with the known that they embraced an unknown. And I'm asking you, like, what's the definition of success? Because there had to be something that they thought they were getting, except just being able to say in a very tough manner, we told you that we were going to leave if you didn't listen to us. That's, well, well you, you, I think you hit the nail on the head. It was uh, an emotional decision based around Cameron going to Europe and not coming back with some kind of compromise just polarized the country, or well, not polarized it, but, but did enough for the leave vote so that it, it, it narrowly won. Interesting. Um, yeah. Well, look, it's a great time to be someone who is relied upon for long-term <laughs> strategy. So well, thanks. You, you've got uh, a great long-term uh, job safety in my mind. Um, and real pleasure speaking with you. One last question, where are we going to dinner? I don't know. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right, Steve. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris.